turn to Ephesians 4. Today we're starting the second half of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. A brief recap of uh, last week as we get started. Uh, The two halves of Ephesians are distinct. How are they distinct? Indicatives and imperatives. Chapters 1 through 3, mostly indicatives, indicating what God has done for us in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6, mostly imperatives, telling us what to do in response. Uh, So, a couple ways to say that. The first half is about how God made us Christians and joined us together as the church. The second half is about how to live out the Christian life. The first half is full of declarations of what God has done. The second half full of commands for us to do. Uh, So last week we studied the verse that ties these two halves together. uh, Chapter 3, verse 21. To God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. How does this tie the two halves together? said that the main goal of both halves is the glory of God displayed in Christ and in His church. Uh, So God's glory is displayed when God is made known. And the first three chapters are about God making Himself known by pouring out salvation through Jesus and creating the church. Uh, The next three chapters are about God being made known through His people as we respond to His grace through faith and obedience to His commands. Remember, we are God's image bearers. Um, We are designed to reflect something of what God is like. Uh, Sin shattered that image, but the image is restored when we are recreated in Christ, and it is further restored when we walk in God's ways. So, uh, as we obey God according to His Word, we better reflect God, thus He is better made known. Um. You could say that the first three chapters are about God glorifying God. The last three chapters are about man glorifying God. But in both halves, the main goal is the glory of God. So with that in mind, let's start the second half. Follow as I read Ephesians 4. I'll read 1 through 6. This is the Word of God. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. Amen. Uh, So before we get into the thick of what Paul is saying here, uh, let's think for a minute about how he reintroduces himself. A prisoner for the Lord, he says. Uh, So Paul is in prison as he writes. Uh, And it just struck me how healthy his perspective is. Paul knows that he did not land in prison by accident. Uh, God is sovereign. In verse 6, he says God is over all and through all and in all. So, God put Paul in prison. And Paul knows that wherever God puts him, God is going to use him. That's not to say that he didn't have hard days in prison. Uh, He was human. And I'm sure he had many hard days in prison. 
But the perspective that comes out is something like, you know, God put me here in this hard place and I'm, I'm here to serve Him for His glory. A prisoner for the Lord. Um, I think we'd do well to imitate Paul and his perspective when we get in hard places. You know, insert yourself. An exhausted mother for the Lord. An overworked employee for the Lord. One with health issues for the Lord. Lonely for the Lord. A season of stress and anxiety for the Lord. A season of depression for the Lord. Grieved by various trials, you fill in the blank, for the Lord. Uh, Wherever you are, you got there under the sovereign control of God. He is working all things for your good, and He can use you right where you are. Okay, let's look at all of verse 1 together. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Uh, This is really the topic sentence for the rest of the letter. The first half of the letter is about God calling us. Uh, The Greek word for church, ekklesia, means called out ones. And uh, we have been called out from the world to God, from darkness to light, from death to life. God has called us out from this vast sea of lost humanity. He's recreated us in Christ. He's filled us with the Holy Spirit. He's assembled us as His church. Um, The first half of the letter is about God calling us from the world to Himself, making us into this new humanity in Christ. The second half is about living as the new humanity in Christ, walking in a manner worthy of our calling. So uh, let's think about what that means uh, what does it mean to have a worthy opponent? Obviously, Golden State was not a worthy opponent. But if, if they were, what would it mean uh, to have a worthy opponent? Well, it means the conflict's meaningful, I suppose, or the matchup is meaningful. There you go. I mean, even just the matchup, that's kind of what I'm looking for. Um, an opponent who measures up, you know, shot for shot, point for point, tit for tat. Um, So what does it mean to walk in a manner that's worthy of our call? It means that the walk matches the call. We've been called out of the world, therefore we live not as the world lives. Uh, We live in the world, not of the world. We have been called into Christ, so we live the Christ life. We live as Christ lives. The rest of the letter is about living the Christ life in the world. Um, Living the Christ life on our own in the context of the church, in our marriages and families, in the workplace, in the community. We're going to deal with all these different contexts. uh, Basically, anywhere, all the time. It's about His kingdom coming and His will being done on earth as it is in heaven, in us and through us. Um, The rest of the letter of Ephesians is about Christians walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. It's It's worth noting here Uh, that we're urged to walk in a manner worthy of the call, not to run as to burn out, not to stand, uh, you know, but just to keep walking. So there's just this kind of steady pace to it. And um, it's not insignificant that when Paul starts to flesh out this worthy walk, the first thing he deals with is relationships between Christians, uh, unity in the body of Christ. God has created the church in order to more clearly make Himself known to the world. And uh, we have significant responsibility to see to it that our church body operates as God intends for His glory so that He might be made known. 
Um, so look at verse 2. Here in this passage, we're called to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then verse 3 is a summary statement of verse 2. Uh, walking in humility and gentleness with patience, etc., is walking in a way that is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So a little bit about verses 3 through 6, and then we'll come back to breaking down verse 2. Uh, first, the word eager, eager to maintain, there's an urgency to what Paul is saying. It calls us to act as though in a crisis, it's urgent that something happen. Uh, Some translations say make every effort. So there's no time to stand by. We must do whatever we can do to make it happen. And it's continuous. So there's no time to waste. Work with all of our energy to do whatever we can. Always. Always doing these things. Um, We must be eager. And then it says eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's important because we are not the creators of this unity. We are the maintainers uh, we are not creators, the creators of the peace. We're the maintainers of the peace. God created the unity by His Holy Spirit. God created this bond of peace by His sovereign grace, and uh, we're called to maintain it. So what unity and peace are we talking about? Well, that's where verses 4 through 6 come in. Um, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul goes back to the indicatives for a minute, and he, he's talking about what God, who God is, and what he's already done. He's expressing uh, the unity that God has created in Christ by the Spirit. So he says there's one united body, the body of Christ, there's one Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit who not only indwells us individually, but who unites us corporately. We all share one hope, the hope of eternal life in Christ. There's one Lord Jesus. There's one faith in Jesus. One baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one God, who is Father, of the Father, who is sovereign over all. So, in verses 4-6, through six, Paul goes back to who God is, what He's done. Father, Son, Spirit, our triune God, unchanging, unchangeable. He saved a people to Himself. He's recreated us in Christ by the Spirit. Um, it cannot be undone. There is an eternal unity that has already been established in Christ between us and God, between us as God's people. Uh, we're, we're the body of Christ. We're united together by His Spirit. And the call for us is, is to live like it. Uh, we're being called to fight to maintain the unity that God has created. Now, um, there's one sense in which the the unity cannot be undone. You know, no man, no devil can separate what God has joined together. But we're really being called to make this unity visible and and to maintain it in a a visible way in our relationships. It's the same as in a marriage. Um, God joins two together to make them one flesh. What God joins together, man cannot separate. But we can seek to eagerly make that unity visible uh, and eagerly seek to maintain it. Same in our relationships within our church family. Uh, He's made us one body by our one Lord Jesus, by the one baptism uh, of the Holy Spirit, and we're we're called to walk in a manner that's worthy of that call on our lives. 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How do we do that? Verse 2 tells us, um, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So I want to break that down. Um, We only have time to look at humility today, but we'll look at the others next week. Does someone mind filling this up? Is that all right? Thank you very much. <clears throat> Where um, humility is basically lowliness or um, lowering oneself. So uh, let's think about a few ways that we can seek to walk in humility. I've come up with a few, and I'll I'll go through those, and then maybe you come up with some more, and you can share those at the end. Uh, one way to walk in humility is to forgive others. You know, humility is lowering oneself. The opposite of humility is pride, which is exalting oneself. Uh, The reason why we don't forgive, simply put, it's pride. Thank you. The reason why we don't forgive is pride. And we say, well, how many times should I forgive someone? A good place to start is how many times have you been forgiven uh, by God? We forgive every time, all the time, because we're forgiven every time, all the time, because of Jesus. Even if the same sin uh, happens a thousand times, and he or she has asked you to forgive them a thousand times, or even if they've never asked for forgiveness, uh, we have to do the necessary work in our hearts to be prepared to forgive. Lowering oneself. Uh, Another way to seek to walk in humility is to confess sin to God and to one another. Again, the opposite of humility is pride. Uh, The root reason why we don't confess sin is self-protection, self-preservation, pride. So the one who seeks to walk in humility confesses sin often. And not just in a general sense, I confess that I'm a sinner Uh, But I am sorry for the particular sin, fill in the blank, that I just committed against you. It's humbling, uh, humiliating to confess sin. In terms of confessing sin one to another, um, certainly we're talking about those we have sinned against, uh, even if they don't bother to confess sin when they sin against us. The call is not to be concerned with someone else's humility. Uh, but with our own. So when we sin against our spouse or our children or our parents or our church family, um, and let me just say, you know, one of the things we talk often about here is community and and life together. And, you know, we want to live as God intended, this life together as the family of God. Well, if, if we do that, as our church family gets closer and closer, we will sin against each other more and more. I mean, you don't have to look very far to know that that's true. Just look at your own family. The closer you get, the more you know there's sin happening against one another. And I think that the devil would love for us to feed our pride when that happens and just coexist with bitterness in our hearts, you know, fracture in relationships, refusing to forgive, and refusing to do the hard work of repairing the relationship. That's easy. Just standing by and and letting the bitterness and the fracture stay. Walking in humility is hard. Um, I've heard of families avoiding each other for years in a church because something happened years prior. And, you know, they'll just sit on the opposite sides of the sanctuary and make sure they avoid each other. Why wasn't that issue resolved? Pride. Um, The way of humility is that we own our sin, we humble ourselves, we confess our sin 
to the one that we sinned against. We ask for forgiveness. And even if you didn't do the sinning, uh, not letting that relationship stay fractured. Pursue them in, in forgiveness. Um, back to uh, confessing sin. This is not only when we've sinned against someone, also just confessing our sin to a brother or sister in Christ is a way of accountability. Um, you know, accountability is not only on someone else to say, hey, how are things going, but on us to confess to someone else, a brother or sister. And um, um, because we know that God calls us to, to bring it out into the light. And if it stays in the dark, it's going to fester and it's going to, you know, breed there and we need to cut it off and not let it do that. Uh, your sin's not against this person, but you need to tell someone. Confessing our sin to one another is a grace to our souls. It protects us from continuing to go back there. Uh, it's humiliating, sure. But it's, it's no surprise, or it shouldn't be, that the path of growing humility will humiliate us. And we need it. We need to be exposed in our sin in order to change. That feeling of humiliation when you lower yourself and confess your sin to someone, it doesn't feel good at the time, but it's very good in terms of leading you back to God uh, and moving forward in His ways. So, when you blow up at someone again, or when you fall back into pornography, or when you've lied about something, or when you covet something or someone, or when you gossip, uh, whatever it is, confess your sin to God and and to someone else. Ask them to pray for you about that. And remember that there are sins of commission, things that we do, sins of omission, uh, things that we don't do. So it may be that God is really convicting about a particular sin of omission, something I'm not doing that I know I'm supposed to be doing. In whatever area He's convicting you, um, confess your sin to someone that you trust in this church. Ask them to help you. Ask God to help you. Alright, I want to elaborate on one of these particular sins that is directly opposed to humility. It's one that we don't talk about enough. I know I don't. Uh, gossip. You know, gossip is one of those domesticated pet sins. Uh, we've all done it, and many of us have it housebroken, and we just sort of let it hang around as often as it likes. Uh, but gossip is devastating to the unity in the church. Gossip does not seek to lower oneself for God's glory, for the good of others. It seeks to promote and exalt self. Gossip does not seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Gossip simply destroys unity and peace. It may not destroy in the same way that like um, an adultery would destroy. It's more like a slow leak of poison than it is like a bomb going off. But make no mistake, gossip destroys the unity that we're called to maintain. So to seek to walk in a manner worthy of the call, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit with all humility, is not to let ourselves gossip. It's not to let others gossip to us. It's uh, even to call out others who are gossiping to us and to confess our sin of gossip and repent of it. Now, in terms of uh, confessing sin to God, 
Um, look, it's not as though we ever exhaust the depths of our sin that remains, right? We never see to the end of it. If we could see it all, uh, we probably wouldn't be able to move forward. God is gracious and that He doesn't show us all of it at one time. But that means that there is no end of, uh, or, or there's always sin to confess. And humbling ourselves in confession of sin and repentance to God should be one of the hallmarks of our lives. Um, I'm reading back through a little book by John Piper. He, he has this series of books that contain three biographies in them. Um, just great men or women from Christian history. Uh, there's a whole series, like I said, but this one has uh, biographies of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, uh, Charles Simeon, who pastored the same church in Cambridge, England for 54 years, and William Wilberforce, who was instrumental in abolishing the slave trade in Europe, which was then instrumental in abolishing the slave trade here. Um, a brief aside about that as I was thinking about just biographies in general, I've gotten to where I'm pretty much always... Um, reading a Christian biography, you know, slowly, little by little, but it's one of the things I'm trying to work through, and I would highly recommend to you, uh, just for me personally, maybe you haven't had the same experience, but few things outside the Bible have so built my faith as to read about uh, men and women from Christian history who uh, God was at work in their life. Anyway, uh, last night I was reading the Simeon biography, and there's there's a section that Piper titled The Ballast of humiliation. Uh, You know what a ballast is? Some of you with boats, you know what a ballast is? We have balance, brings uh, stability. The ballast balances. It keeps it stable, keeps it from tipping over. Um, So Piper says that one of the things that kept Simeon steady and stable for all those years, 54 years of pastoring the same church, Uh, was his own humiliation. And I want to read you just a few of Simeon's own words. He said, There are but two objects that I have ever desired for these 40 years, this was before the end, uh, for these 40 years to behold. The one is my own vileness, and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I have always thought that they should be viewed together, just as Aaron confessed all the sins of Israel while he put them on the head of the scapegoat. The disease did not keep him from applying the remedy, nor did the remedy keep him from feeling the disease. By this I seek to not only be humble and thankful, but humbled in thankfulness before my God and Savior continually. Uh, Just that little part about the remedy and the the sickness or the disease, he said, um, what he's saying is the disease of sin did not keep him from applying the remedy. Uh, The scapegoat was the remedy that God had provided to cover the people of Israel's sins. It was a foreshadowing of Christ, um, but but neither did the um, remedy, the fact that God had provided a remedy, the the remedy did not keep him from feeling the disease. So to say it another way, uh, we are sinners, but that should not keep us from applying the remedy. We have to continually remind ourselves of the full and final forgiveness in Christ. On the other hand, though we know that God has provided full and final forgiveness in Christ, though we know that He's provided the remedy for our sin, that should not keep us from feeling our sin on a regular basis. 
In fact, it was Simeon's daily discipline of asking God to expose his vileness before God's Word so that Simeon would feel his sin and and see it to new depths every day so that the Gospel could be applied to new depths every day. Because he knew ultimately the only way that I'm going to be sustained in serving the Lord is if the Gospel uh, seeps in deeper. So this humiliation of being exposed before God was the ballast that kept him steady in his effort to walk in a manner worthy of the call. I think there's much to learn there. Um, I just ask myself and I ask you, how often do we sit down with God's Word and pray that God would rip off another layer and show us our vileness to new depths? Uh, It's a great way to start every morning devotion. God, search my heart and show me my vileness. And once you've shown me my vileness again, show me Christ again. Um, Perfect humility is not in this room, even if you add it all up. Uh, Perfect humility is seen in Jesus Christ, who, though He was in the form of God, Philippians 2 says, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing. He humbled Himself. He lowered Himself. Uh, Though He was God, He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And if that wasn't enough, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the worst kind of death, death on a cross. So Jesus perfected humility for our salvation, and we are here in Ephesians 4 called uh, to imitate his humility as we live out our salvation. Also in that uh, Philippians 2 passage, Paul tells us to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, Uh, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. So humility can be summed up in saying that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Uh, And and we imitate His humility when we seek to serve God and others over and above ourselves. Forgiving others serves God and others. Confessing sin serves God and others. Uh, It's a great encouragement to our brothers and sisters, not that we that we sin, but that we have a repentant heart and, and that we're secure enough in our identity in Christ that we're willing to confess our sin. Confessing sin to God serves God and it prepares us to better serve others. So he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Um, walk with all humility. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, um, we recognize that You have created an eternal unity between us. Uh, We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are members of the one body because of our one Lord, uh, the body of our one Lord, uh, united by the one Spirit. Uh, We share one hope, and uh, You are our one Father. Lord, we're united in Your family. We know that that is our eternal reality. But we do pray uh, that you would give us grace to make that reality apparent, not only to one another, but to the watching world. Uh, The reality is fracture and um, disunity in the church has been 
has brought great heartache to Christians and has just uh, thrown tar on your name to the watching world. We pray, Lord, that you would vindicate your name uh, by just creating here a people that are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We recognize that we are not humble men and women, uh, but we also see the call, uh, Lord, to, to walk in humility. We rest in the one who is perfectly humble. Uh, Lord Jesus, as you came uh, and lived and died in our place for our sins, and, and we do seek to imitate you, we pray that you would give us your strength to do just that, and we pray uh, in your name. Amen. Okay, we have a few minutes for thoughts, questions, whatever it is that's on your brain. Chris, I think sometimes when I think of humility, I think of lowly of myself, mm-hmm. um, which is contradictory, obviously, to self-esteem or even Christ's esteem. But to me, it seems one way or the other, but... I read a book not long ago by Keller, The Freedom mm-hmm. of Self-Forgetfulness. Mm-hmm. It uses the verses Paul talks about. I don't judge others. I don't even judge myself. Mm-hmm. And it's a short book, but it's just talking about like not thinking of yourself at all and how there's a great freedom in that. Mm-hmm. Not thinking low of yourself or high of yourself, but just leaving yourself yourself out of it. Yeah. No, and I, I think you're right on. Um, <laughs> I, I think that would be the ideal, and I don't think that any of us do that for very long, but ultimately, and that's really what Simeon was saying, is he didn't come to the Bible to see himself, he came to the Bible to see the Lord, but in seeing the Lord, inevitably he was exposed again, and desired to be exposed again, um, not to stay looking at himself, but to, but that's a good point, not, lo- not thinking of yourself less, but think, uh, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Anyone else? Something else that I saw, you know, in that Philippians passage, it talks about um, Jesus humbled himself by obeying to the point of death, which is just like, think of Jesus obeying. But ultimately, I mean, the Father and the Son had a plan that the Son would go accomplish the salvation of his people. Uh, The Father, Son, and Spirit had a plan. And um, Jesus humbled himself by obeying God's call on his life, even to the point of death. Um, You could say obeying obeying his own call on his life, but you understand what I'm saying. Um, So one way to seek to walk in humility is to obey God's word. And uh, walking in obedience to God and growing in humility are one and the same. And again, it fits with what Elaine's saying. I mean, it's thinking less of yourself, thinking more of who God is, what he's done, and what he's called us to do. Um, not my will being done, God's will being done. And it makes sense to me why humility is the first thing mentioned here in this section because this whole entire section is about obedience to God according to His Word. Um, So it was just interesting to me to see that in the Philippians passage that in describing perfect humility, it says that Jesus obeyed uh, God even to the point of death. And um, anyway. I don't know how this will come out my attempt to address gossip. Okay. Uh, I think a lot of times... <laughs> uh, Just shoot, man. We guys, can take it. Well, guys, we get up, we kind of let ourselves off the hook and think, you know, the hymns are clucking or whatever. 
<laughs> okay, put that. Down. Yeah. You could quit there, and that was good. But I think it's hard to figure out how to address it. It's something that it's it's almost like it's so common in different varying degrees that uh, it's very defensible. Like I can defend uh, my thoughts or things that I say really easily. It's kind of like like if you walk in the wrong group of Republicans and say something negative about the conservative. Like, they've got a defense for everything. Right. So that's the way I think about gossip. It's kind of like I'm really, really good at um, defending and justifying uh, the way I think about other people negatively. Um, so I don't really know how to confront it in the church, but it seems like it start, it's not necessarily a matter of if I'm gossiping, but when, how, and how do I weigh that against Scripture and um, mm-hmm. address it in humility. Yeah, I, I, a couple thoughts. I mean, that's a great point. And uh, one thing I think would just be that God would make us sensitive to it in ourselves. You know, And so when we're in a conversation and we find ourselves gossiping and He brings it to mind, you're gossiping. Call it what it is. Well, I've just gossiped. And uh, I'm not going to continue to do that. And I don't want to do that again. Uh, you know, and again, like Jeff said last week, I mean, any time in confrontation, that word is freighted uh, uh, with negative connotations. I don't think it should be, but um, you, you confront or talk to someone about their sin with, in the fear of the Lord, you know, not as one who's perfected what you're talking about. But even just to say, if you're in a conversation, it's going to be with your friend and maybe, but they're, they're gossiping. And so, you know, even just say, I think we're gossiping. I don't know. Bring yourself into it. You're part of it too. I'm part of it too. So, um, but it is just something that it just destroys. And it destroys little by little. It's really hard for me not to say anything right now. But, okay. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> um, I think people think gossip is harmless, and that's part of the reason that they... They really think it is harmless. They don't even understand it. Mm. I've, my family's had to deal with some issues with gossip this week mm-hmm. um, that have been devastating mm-hmm. to my 11-year-old. Mm-hmm. Devastating. And getting ready to become devastating to my 9-year-old. And it has nothing to do with children. It has to do with the adults gossiping. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, people just don't realize yeah. the... the um, what they're doing to mm-hmm. other people. You know, it's a, I agree with you. And uh, oftentimes it takes going through it yourself on the other end or seeing someone that you care about go through it on the other end to realize the danger and, and destruction that it causes. But um, we can't say it much enough. I mean, it's just pure cancer to the unity of a congregation. And that, it's another important point. You know, many in here have children. Uh, one of the places where this can tend to happen more and more and more is parents talking back and forth about other people's kids. And, you know, it's just may God make us sensitive to it, that we loathe it, that we get convicted when we do it, when we hear it. Um, Uh, another 
prayer is a major cultivator of humility. It's just, even just, it's a posture of lowering oneself before God. So I was thinking about, you know, um, the command to pray without ceasing. Does that mean we don't do anything other than prayer? Well, no, but I mean, it is a call to just live in a culture of prayer in your life. And so pray when you wake up, pray when you sit down, pray when you get going, pray when you get done, pray when you sin, pray when you succeed, pray with those you just sinned against, uh, pray when you're happy, pray when we're sad, pray when we're angry, pray when we're tempted, pray when we've just resisted temptation, pray right after a fight. Pray after an enjoyable evening together. Pray when your kids are nuts. Pray when your kids are sweet. Pray when work is terrible. Pray when work is great. Pray when you're hurting. Pray when you're fulfilled. Pray when you're anxious. Pray when you're at peace. I mean, it's just a ongoing, all the time, coming before the Lord in prayer. And uh, it's a great cultivator of humility. Okay, one more Time for one more. We're done. Good day. And happy Mother's Day.